All right, welcome back to 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and joining me this week for episode 41 is Jonathan Baker, CEO of Simudyne, a company that believes all decisions should be simulated. Providence, Simudyne's core technology, is used by modelers, developers, quants, and strats to build simulations for financial institutions. Simudyne is another great example of how startups in London are using emerging tech to tackle large problems. Personally, Jonathan exudes a give-first mentality to help others grow, and I'm so thrilled for you all to learn more about him as well. And with that, here's Jonathan. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on my show. I'm really excited to have you. No, excited to be here. (laughs) So let's start by talking about Simudyne and what the idea is. Sure. So as a company, we fundamentally believe that all decisions of consequence in the future will be subject to computer simulation. So that's our thesis. So we feel that Not only will it be the case, but it should be the case that every time you make a big, important decision at the enterprise level, that you should be subjecting that computer to some kind of scrutiny. Uh, Sorry, uh, subjecting that decision to some kind of scrutiny. Uh, And we feel the best way to do that is with computer simulation. So you're the Bank of England, you're the Fed, you know, you're the New York Fed. You've got to make decisions around really important decisions around monetary policy, around how do we set interest rates, and these. These decisions affect real people. They affect the unemployment rate. They affect, they affect the inflation rate. So it would only make sense that if you're going to make these big, important decisions, that you want to at least first run some kind of uh, scenario analysis or some kind of large-scale distributed computational simulation. So you can say, if we make these decisions, what are the likely results that are going to happen so that we can best kind of mitigate against those risks and understand all the plausible scenarios. Does this not already exist for banks? You would think that what is the type of protocol they currently are doing that you're helping with? Sure, sure. So yes, banks have been doing simulation for for a long time. Um, They've been doing it. They they tend to use uh, high-performance computing environments. They require extremely expensive hardware, very expensive uh, specialized programming skills. So you would only uh, use simulation when the sort of the payoff for doing so was so great, or the uh, the risk for not doing uh, for, for not using it would be so catastrophic. Um, so actually, you see uh, large scale simulations uh, more often in the in the military than you would in, in finance. Um, you often see it at the government level. So there's uh, Los Alamos has done some a lot of really interesting research uh, where they kind of uh, they they joint they linked up uh, forty thousand machines to do large-scale simulations of the entire U.S. population to understand uh, the, you know, the potential effects of pandemics spreading across the United States and which critical pieces of national infrastructure and schools they would have to close first. So you, when you run these kind of simulations, you're only going to do them if, the, if the, the, you know, the payoff for doing so is really big. Um, so banks use these kinds of simulations to, to help them figure out what are the effects of you know, some of, some of our counterparties going under. What are the, you know, how resilient is our balance sheet? Uh, mm-hmm. The problem is that it's very, very expensive. So you've got these great big high-performance computing environments. You're employing a lot of very, very specialist skills. You've got to hire quants to build the models, software engineers to connect the models to the data. 
You've then got to hire in distributed computing engineers to actually spread all of the calculations over hundreds of servers because there's so much uh, data and models going on. And banks really want to try and automate as much of this as possible. So that's where you bring in a solution like Simudyne has, where we uh, provide a strategic piece of technology that goes across the organization. So rather than um, coding a simulation in a particular language, in a particular part of the bank for a particular use case, you can actually use Simudyne's technology to address all of your all of your simulation use cases. We provide a common framework and language so that all the different desks can use the same environment uh, and talk to each other. Uh, and by doing that, we massively reduce costs uh, and, and headcount. That sounds awesome. But I'm wondering though, is it just banks you want to go after? I'm looking at even the news today, right? Whenever Amazon announces they're going to go into a different sector, you know, someone else's stock price goes down. So wouldn't a lot of companies benefit from simulation of, of, you know, just running different scenarios of what could happen in the future and how it might impact their business? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. So coming back to the thesis or the vision, which is we believe fundamentally that all important decisions are consequence will be subject to computer simulation. So it's not just financial services. It's oil and gas, telecommunications, defense, transportation, smart cities, all decisions. Um, You've got to start somewhere. And right now, um, financial services has the budget, they have the expertise, and they have the technological know-how to really embrace simulation technologies at the moment. So our kind of business plan or our strategy was to go after financial services, get a real toehold in that industry, as the other as other sectors like health and transportation catch up technologically, and we can talk about what that means later, as those catch up, we will have really dominated and owned the financial service space. So we're then ready to take that knowledge and expertise and apply it elsewhere. Got it. And so it's funny because when I spoke to Chris originally about you guys, I heard simulations and I first thought of improbable. But you know, learning about it from you, it seems like you're vastly different than what they're doing. So we, so we have a very different way of approaching simulations, and we're also mm-hmm. going to different markets. So yeah. Probable is a, is a very interesting company. So I was obviously at university with, with Herman and Rob. Uh, they're a little bit older than me. But they're really going after the gaming space. So they're trying, to, they're trying to solve the kind of really hard underlying engineering problems that you would need to fix so that you can have sort of infinitely scalable virtual worlds that were persistent. So, you know... We've all played games like Call of Duty and stuff. There's a limit to the number of characters we can have in a game. Wouldn't it be great if you could have essentially unlimited people in the game and the worlds persist? So when I come back next week, that tree that we chopped down is still chopped down. So it's a very, very interesting company. They're going after an enormous market. What we're going after, though, is is the enterprise. So Mm -hmm. uh, we're going after global financial institutions, uh, tier one banks, hedge funds, um, insurance companies. And we've tailored our product uh, in a number of uh, very specific ways to make it perfectly suitable for those enterprise environments. So if you want to take a game engine into Goldman Sachs, then they're going to have some problems because they don't actually have the skill sets to be able to program effectively uh, in Mm -hmm. a kind of physics engine. Um, Whereas we've used modern uh, web technologies we use enterprise languages like Java and Scala so that when we turn up at a bank like Barclays and we say, here's our solution, and we can ra- we can massively reduce the time it takes for you to do stress testing. And by the way, you already have the expertise to do this. You have hundreds of engineers. Uh, here's the software. Uh, they can immediately get, uh, get on and, and start building solutions without this really big, steep learning curve. 
Got it. And so before we go into you, I want to talk about what it's like growing a startup in London. So obviously, I'm, I'm guessing you're from the UK, but what are the benefits you see? And did you guys ever think about coming to America? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I really feel like if you're building a financial technology company, I don't think there's anywhere better right now that, than in London. Mm-hmm. You're over in, the, in New York, so you're probably going to disagree with me. but the, <laughs> No, the I don't at all, actually. The, I think the, London is the network effects in London yeah. are just absolutely huge, and, and they're, not going, they're not going away. So right now we're based in Shoreditch. It's a 30-minute mm-hmm. train ride off to Canary Wharf where you've got all of the you know, the tier one banks there in one location. So we pop over there two, three times a week. You've not just got the, uh, you know, you've not just got the, the banks, you've got a big, big community of, you know, supportive angel investors and mentors uh, who really value the startup community and really want to contribute. You've got a lot, you've got founders who have had successful exits who want to come back and, and support the community like, uh, like Chris, one of our mutual friends. So Chris is actually an investor. In our company, he's added huge amounts of value. So very grateful for uh, everything he's done. And, and, and everybody should certainly check out the work that Chris does. I really feel like if you're doing something in financial technology, like London's a place to be, that you have the talent, the network, and all the big firms here. Yeah, I actually disagree. Oh, I don't disagree. I agree with you about London. And I don't think that New York is better just because, yes, financial services are in New York, but I think... London and Cambridge is where you're really seeing the deep technical expertise. And, you know, Cambridge is only, what, an hour outside of London. So, you know, with that university there, I actually think that London, you know, has the industry and a breadth of industries to really excel. And I'm very bullish on on London, actually, as the next big growing startup hub. Good to hear. Nice, so am I. Yeah. All right. So let's switch gears to you. So where did you grow up? Where are you from? So I grew up on the south coast in the UK, in a town called Bournemouth. Uh, so it's a sort of seaside town, beautiful beaches. Um, you wouldn't believe it until you go on Google Images and search Bournemouth. Very, very nice, a very quiet town, just on the seaside population, probably about 200,000, something like that. Uh, and I grew up there all the way up till I was sort of 18. Uh, and then I went to university. Uh, so what do your parents do for a living? Uh, so my mother, who I'm uh, just about to go and have uh, dinner with this evening, uh, she was a, uh, she's a social worker. Just uh, She's actually just retired. So she took a bit of time off to uh, go and travel uh, around Vietnam. Uh, it was very exciting, so a bit very jealous my uh, my father actually actually died when i was when i was very young um but he, he was also in a similar career he he cared for mentally ill people ill people 11 12 when that happened so i don't have huge i don't know exactly what he was doing but i uh, I, I think he was a paramedic as well when he was younger just like my brother-in-law and my, my sister as well Oh, got it. So I saw that you went to college actually for mathematics and economics. When oh, did you I'm start getting interested? <laughs> I am. I'm on, of course I'm stalking you. I'm interviewing you. Amazing. Where, where did you, you know, were you always interested in math as a kid? Is that where you kind of gravitated towards? Um, and what did you do outside of school? So I'd love to, I'd love to say that, you know, ever since I was sort of seven, I was solving maths puzzles and I was like reading maths books and that kind of stuff. But um, that would be an act, that would be a massive lie. So, no, I mean, I I was never really that, I, you know, 
when I was at school, I, I was focused on having a good time. I had very supportive parents who encouraged me to play a lot of sport, go out with my friends a lot. I really enjoyed playing basketball. I did a lot of bike riding and I would come, come to school to socialize, I suppose. Um, and then as I got older, it got a bit more serious with exams. Um, so I started having to, you know, do a bit of study and, and read some books uh, alongside the sports I was doing. And I found maths quite intuitive. I thought it was very interesting and it was in a kind of really nerdy way. It was like a form of meditation, I suppose. You can really get into it and just enjoy it. And then it just kind of, once you kind of click with mathematics, I think you get into this big kind of spiral, which keeps kind of extending out. And, and you realize that more and more things are connected. Things are sort of the same problem, just in a different disguise. So I think I was lucky enough that maybe I read the right book or it was just the right time where something clicked and everything sort of started to make sense. So what did you want to be when you grew up when you were younger? I actually wanted to be a professional basketball player. So I actually, <laughs> yeah, so I, I even tried out for the, the England squad. Um, oh, this, wow. This was before we had an Olympic team. Um, which was good. Um, so you, you, you know, you go through all of the rounds, and you like work really hard. But actually, I got to the got to the last round, and I, I wasn't accepted. So that was, in hindsight, you know, it's not the end of the world. But at the time, that was actually quite devastating for me because I really didn't work hard for that. Okay, so but so vastly different than what you're doing now. So yeah, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> so after school, you were a teacher. But when did you start thinking? about being an entrepreneur? Yeah, that's a good question. I was, so when I was at university, it was a bit of a faux pas to go ahead and start your own business. That would sort of, you know, if you told people that you were, if you told somebody you were not going into banking or consulting, they would, you know, you'd get some funny looks. So I think, I think it was something that I was always really wanted to do. And I probably, when I was a bit younger, I probably bowed a little bit too much to, to social pressure to go and do something that I probably wasn't really that interested in. So I, I went ahead and did the whole kind of banking, uh, consultancy, internship stuff, kind of got the offers to, to, to go ahead and do them, uh, uh, you know, when I graduated. And, and, and last minute, I just thought, you know what, this isn't what I'm really interested in. I, I actually kind of want to, I want to do something else. So I decided to, as you, as you correctly said, that I would go and uh, do something which I was interested in, that I did enjoy, uh, which is mathematics. And I thought I'd try and, try and teach some students a, a few tricks to kind of see that if I, I, I thought that if I could catch students early and get them interested in, get them interested in maths, then it could really change things. Because it took, I, didn't, I was not really that interested in it until I was quite old, maybe 16, 17, uh, relatively. But I thought if I could catch kids when they're 11, 12, get them interested in mathematics and programming, it, it could really change them. So yeah, I took a job. I found, was very, very, very fortunate to work with a real visionary uh, head teacher um, called Ben, Ben Antel, really um, forward thinking uh, teacher and, and got to know him over the years. And he, he was able to, he gave me a huge opportunity, which was to step up and become the head of the department for the two schools that he was overseeing. Um, so taking a huge gamble on me because I'd only been I'd only been teaching for a year or so to try and turn around the, the, the two schools and see if we could improve some result uh, improve results with some sort of different kinds of uh, techniques um, and, and toolkits. So bringing in new kinds of teachers, um, doing a different kind of curriculum, um, and, and really trying to motivate the kid to excel. And, and I feel like over the two and a half years that we were there and we worked together, that we we really made a difference like that. 
And then sort of two years, you know, two and a half years into it, I thought, I, I feel like I've done some good. I feel like I've enjoyed myself and learned, learned a lot about people. And now it's um, now I'm ready to go to London. So I packed up all my stuff, moved to London, and 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 start something, start something that that is my own. So that's that's kind of how it went. How did you then start Simudine? You know, just you just moved to London and said you wanted to start something, but how did yeah, you meet so your co-founders well, and things like that? You, you always you know you connect the dots backwards, and it, it sounds like a nice story, but it was very very unstructured. So I'd. I'd saved quite a bit of money uh, living on the South Coast where it was a bit cheaper. And I thought, you know, I've got around a year's worth of runway now of savings where I can come to London and try and make stuff work. So I still had to, I had to take a few different jobs. Uh, I actually ended up doing research consultancy. So there's a, not a lot of people know this, but a, a lot of research papers that come out of companies, sort of white papers or some kind of research, maybe it's for a big company like Procter & Gamble or, or a smaller uh, consultancy. Uh, a lot of them publish research papers or white papers to kind of bolster their thought leadership. And actually, those are very rarely written by people inside the firm. Or almost always, they're contracted out. Um, so you can make enough money to live and then you can focus on, you know, exploring this 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 world of, of startups. So I did that for, for, for quite a few months. And I was really just trying to... But when I first moved, it wasn't so much about let's start a business. It was about let's understand the space because I had no zero network. I knew nobody in London. It didn't have, really have any family there. I maybe knew one or two people from school, but certainly didn't know anything about the, fin, the, you know, the fintech space, the, the startup space. So I thought, let me take so a few months out to kind of meet as many people as possible um, and just see if I can help people, see if I can add some value. I, I did a load of hackathons. I would just go and see if there was anything I could do uh, to help people in the space who I thought we were doing interesting things. And then uh, eventually I got on to, there's like, the, London has some of these like kind of mini accelerator programs where they'll kind of accept you if you've got a kind of a half-baked idea and lots of enthusiasm. And it's sort of like the precursor to an accelerator. So I managed to get on one of these through sort of meeting meeting somebody, talking to them about some ideas I had around cybersecurity. So this was at, this was actually through a hedge fund called Winton Capital, which was over in, in Hammersmith. So I spent a bit of time there work, working on some ideas in this kind of like incubator space. And while I was there, I met Justin. So Justin's the CEO of, of Simudyne. Uh, now and he was he was mentoring so just like Chris is, is, is mentoring us um Justin's a sort of serial entrepreneur he, he's sold businesses done the whole you know done all that fun stuff uh, he's much older than me and we got talking and he said you know what is it that you want to do so we started sharing you know sharing ideas with each other building a relationship and it was really over the course of many months of talking we we we, we were exploring different ideas and he said you know I have this I have this company called Simudyne. Uh, you know, it's a consultancy. We we do a lot of consulting projects around you know simulation. We, we've hired consultants. It's all bespoke and this kind of stuff. It's a good lifestyle business, um, and I'm interested in turning it into a, a product company. I have one developer. That's it. So we started talking about the kind of skill sets that we would need to hire to actually build a, a large scale simulation product. Um, we started talking about who, you know, who we would need to hire, who we need to bring on, what kind of company would this look like, what culture would we need to build, what what sectors would we want to focus on first, and then ultimately we decided that we would go for financial. We would team up, we 
I'd come on, work full time, and we would build Simuline into a product company that tier one banks would be using. And sort of, you know, 12 months on, now we're here. We've we launched the product about two months ago. Barclays have bought it. Commonwealth Bank of Australia bought it. A hedge fund called Neuron Advisors have bought it. And we're in a good place. We're about 15 now. Uh, we've got three more engineers starting in September. And we're going to be around 35 about midtime next year. So that's the that's the story. That's awesome. So why did you guys decide to join Techstars Barclays? Uh, it's a good question. We <laughs> so it's, this is probably not the not the right answer. Um, <laughs> we were we were squatting, all borderline squatting in sort of this converted car park in one of the big <laughs> areas of town, and we genuinely had and genuinely seriously. You should uh, you know, our poor engineers. We had one engineer at the time actually. Uh, we had mice running around on the floor and. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't concentrate because these mice were running around. And it was okay. I, I was often out of the office taking meetings, so I'd only see one or two a day. And we'd have power cuts. And the people who, um, lovely people, but the, the people managing, sort of or semi-managing the building didn't want to pay for uh, heating. So it would be sort of minus two in the winter, snowing outside, and we're just freezing. And we just thought, we, you know, <laughs> something needs to change. So one of our investors said, you should uh, think about one of these incubation, incubator programs because you get a nice plush office with heating, the internet works. It's gonna with heating. Heating is now a selling point to join yeah, exactly. the incubator. <laughs> And he said, critically, you can actually bring clients here or you can have meetings without being embarrassed. So, so he said, OK, maybe there's something to this. So we started exploring the whole accelerator space. We were, you know, we were we were we had a healthy level of skepticism about it. We thought we'd, do, we'd really do our homework. So we spent a day where we called about between us about 40 different founders who had been through all these programs. We had a little spreadsheet where we basically sort of scoring them one to ten on all these criteria uh, you know after a couple of days of doing that we honed in on Techstars as, as being what we thought would be the best fit for us so then we went ahead and contacted a, you know as many founders as we could who had been through the program and you know nine out of ten of them said this was transformational for the business yeah so then we got in contact with Chris got to know him really connected uh, really mm-hmm. really got to know Chris well really thought he was a really good guy really wanted to do do well his attitude was you know whether you join whether you join or not I, I want to help you guys out he provided us lots lots of value lots of introductions and, and advice and we thought actually this is this is what we need right now because we are sort of you know two people three people one person in Boston uh, sorry, developer working remotely in Boston. We need to. We need some support to. If we really want to take financial services and own that space as the simulation platform, then we can't just walk into Goldman Sachs and say, "Hey guys, when are we going to meet the the, the chief risk officer? We, we're going to need some help." So we saw the Barclays Techstars program as a great opportunity to engage with sort of tier one financial services firms at the executive level to really sell them on our vision, give them some access and exposure to our technology and work with them to develop a solution that that's fit for purpose for the 21st century. Yes, definitely. And, you know, on the plus side, their tagline should be join Barclays. We have heating and no rats. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to tell Chris that and be like, I think your marketing is it, quite it, wrong. 
<laughs> friends who come into the office now are just they they can't they can't believe it. They're like you, this is this is the absolute opposite. So when we when we bring new people in, uh, we've been hiring quite a few engineers at the moment. And they come in and they're like, this office is so nice. You've got, you've got free coffee, nice plush leather chairs, and I. I whip out the iPhone, I show them the photos of the room with no windows, no radiator. In fact, so there's a great story. So there was one, <laughs> there was one time when um, it, it was so cold in the building that people were going out and buying fan heaters. So you, you plug into the wall. And so many, it turned out that so many people independently had bought fan heaters it blew the fuse of the entire building so all of the power just cuts and because this isn't a serviced office it's not like you've got the the sort of the internal engineering team who just go up and fix it this is like boom lights out with no prospect of the lights coming back on so we found that in the whole building there was sort of uh there was like a, a some sh- there was like a shower area sort of underground where for, for some reason there was some power working um, so we all kind of, the team, we kind of huddled down into this sort of semi-basement area, sort of, te- you know, working off um, our laptops, tethering on our phones. And we were like, this is hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, next time I come to London, I'll have to meet up just so I can see those photos because yeah, yeah, you're really I'm- painting a, a vivid picture for me. Um, <laughs> and I honestly pity your your first hire. He, uh, <laughs> he deserves a medal, but. <laughs> he, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's great and so we're getting to the end of the podcast so let's talk about some fun questions okay um what is another london startup that you really love there's a there's a company called scalable capital they do sort of digital investment management so they're not in the building i met them when they were at very very early stages in their sort of life cycle and I, this, this was when I had literally just moved to London and I didn't, literally didn't know anybody. And I met their, um, one of their founders and the, the CEO, Adam, who's a very, very formidable guy, very, very knowledgeable, a real, real expert who's, who's built uh, what, I, what I see as a really great company. He sort of took time out of his day to, to come and meet with me for a couple of hours to help me out give me some really, really good advice and tell me a little bit about his, his company, what he was doing. And I thought, what a generous guy, first of all, how, like, you know, how kind, you know, there's not really much like sort of add to him at the time. And as he was speaking, I thought it's, it's rare that I meet somebody who has, who's so ambitious, so driven, has such a formidable founding team is going after a really interesting space but simultaneously is able to be so generous and kind with his time to, to, to take some time out, speak to somebody who's just moved to London and, and see if he can help them out. So I'll always have a sort of a sweet spot for that company. So that, that would be my, that would be my one to go and have a look at if you're, if you're interested in, in figuring out what, you know, where some important stuff is happening in the London taxi. That's great. No, that's a great answer. And so finally, if you could interview one founder, who would it be and why? There's a lot of really obvious answers, as, as you can imagine. I'm going to try my best not to give the, the obvious answer. Everybody wants to interview Mark Zuckerberg, right? Of course, hey, you just want to meet the guy. But I think this is, pro- this, is a bit, this is probably going to be a bit controversial, but 
I would really, really like to, I would be really interested in spending an hour with interviewing Peter Thiel. Oh, really? Okay, why? I think that what he, what he said in public is very, very interesting. Obviously, no, nobody agrees with everything he says, but he kind of, I think he kind of teases you with enough insight in, in, the, in the kind of public realm to suggest that he's got some very, very uh, interesting views and opinions and perspectives, uh, which perhaps he's not sharing because they're probably, a too, they're probably too unpopular for the mainstream media to consume. But to be able to kind of sit him down and ask him his own contrarian question, which is, you know, Peter, what important truth do you believe that very few people agree with you on? Because he's not really willing to share those Although he asks other people those questions, he's very share those in public other than in the kind of more sort of trivial aspects around things like competition. And um, he has this thing around, uh, what is it? Competition and capitalism being synonyms around synonyms. And it's like, yeah, come on. that's. That, I'm, I'm sure you've got more interesting things than that to say. Um, regardless of whether or not we, we got on or agreed, I think he would, he'd be somebody who would really challenge you to, to think hard and, and question yourself and questioning the assumptions you're making. And I really value that kind of perspective and conversations with those kinds of people. It's funny you say that because there's someone that I interviewed this week, actually, for the show, the episode before you. But he basically said, you learn the most from conversations with smart people that you strongly disagree with. I think I read that on his Twitter, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, So I, I do think, you know, meeting with people... And even if you don't get along, is, is a great way to push your thinking forward. So I agree. It'd be a, it's a really great one to pick. All right. Well, thank you so much. That's it for the show today. Thanks so much for I being really, on it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for getting me in contact. I'm really glad we met. And, and all the best. All the best. All right. That's a wrap on this week's episode of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode.